waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I'm the song of drunkards. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your pure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me, or the depths swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love, in your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I'm in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. The word of the Lord. Good morning. One of my favorite animated films, maybe it'll be shared by some people in the crowd here, is 2015 Pixar film called Inside Out. Anybody else like this movie? Yeah. Uh, if you haven't watched it, I really would encourage you to watch it. Maybe this will be the, the catalyst for you doing so. Um, it'll sound like a convoluted plot, but it all, all kind of works. It's 11-year-old uh, Riley moves from, I think, Minnesota to San Francisco. And that's traumatic for an adult, but certainly for an 11-year-old girl who has big emotions. And in this movie, they do a masterful job of personifying her emotions. So there's like an emotional headquarter. You go inside of her brain or heart, inside of her. And I think it's uh, joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. And so it goes from like in real time, Riley doing, doing her deal, and she eventually wants to run away back to 
Minnesota because she's feeling no more joy. So joy inside her is like, ah, we got to fight to save her. And there's this whole like memory dump thing where memories go to die, the core memories. So this 11-year-old, the joy personified is like, she's forgetting joy. She's becoming really sad and she's full of disgust and fear. We got to save her. So there's whole plot inside and outside. But inside, uh, Joy's trying to save these joyful memories from the memory dump and meets Riley's imaginary friend, Bing Bong. And so Bing Bong and Joy kind of team up. I told you, it sounds kind of convoluted, but it totally works in the film. And at the end, so that the climactic scene inside of Riley, uh, Bing Bong realizes the only way to save the joyful memories is to, to give her life. So Bing Bong sacrifices her life and Joy wins the day, and Riley comes back home, and all is well. I'm watching this with my family, and I'm just like, <laughs> just like weeping uncontrollably. And if you know me, and my family knows me, they're just rolling their eyes at me, like, oh, here goes Dad again. And I was reflecting, and I was like, why am I so emotional at a cartoon of an 11-year-old girl where personified emotions? What is wrong with me? I need to talk to my therapist and figure all of that out. But as I was gracious to myself, I realized it was a beautifully done film, and it evocatively set forth these really deep emotions that we all feel of childhood and, you know, kind of transitioning out of childhood and leaving some of that good stuff behind, the loss of friends, meeting new friends, courage, self-sacrificial love, all these things going on. Of course, if you're paying attention, of course you're going to be emotional. Uh, last week was Easter Sunday, and if you were here, glad you were here with us. And um, I shared um, about our friend, good friend Steve, who has pancreatic cancers and hospice. And thank you for allowing me to share that. Thank you for those of you who have prayed, and I would encourage you to continue to pray. But as I shared that story, um, as you witnessed, uh, I got emotional. And, and I love Steve, and you, you might be thinking, oh, he's being manipulative. I promise you I wasn't. Um, it just came. I thought I was going to get it all out of my system in the first service. And if you were <laughs> just both services, it was like a take two. I was like, oh boy. And uh, that guy, why it's, not, why it's not manipulative and like I didn't plan it because like it's horrible to like <laughs> lose your ability to control your emotions in front of hundreds of people who are watching you. It's very frightening and scary. Who would choose that? Uh, and, and, and probably when you were witnessing it last week, um, you felt weird. And, and, and you were like, oh, I don't, what's wrong with him? <laughs> you know, somebody go save him and give him a hug. That guy needs a hug. And uh, that's what emotions do to us. They're curious and they're wild and they're mysterious and they're complex. And we literally don't know what to do with them, most of us. Some of you are really emotionally healthy, like three of you, and you got it. <laughs> the rest of us don't know what to do with them. I was, I was at uh, my physical a few years ago, meeting with my doctor, and he was like, so how are you doing? How are you feeling? We went through the checklist, and I was, you know, at the time I was feeling, I was feeling okay. And, uh, and then he's like, well, how are your emotions? I was like, oh, we're going there. And, uh, and I was kind of, as I shared this, I was kind of proud of him, because growing up, I was kind of like athlete, jock kid who just didn't cry and was tough and all that kind of stuff. And as I've gotten older, I, as you all witnessed last week, I, I get emotional a lot easier. And so I was sharing that with him, thinking he was going to pat me on the back and say, good job. And he's like, oh, well, you're getting older. That's just probably lower testosterone. <laughs> it's like, bro, you know, how about like a tender heart? You know, like, you know, come on now, lower testosterone. They don't even know what to do with emotions, right? Doctors, professionals, we, we struggle. And so we're going to launch into a series and try to make some headway and see how we do by God's grace. Uh, and this series is called The Emotions of God. And it was prompted. It's been in my mind for a little while uh, since I saw this book. And David uh, Lamb is a scholar, a really great biblical scholar. I've gotten to know him a little bit. Um, and uh, I just thought it was a really great idea. I've never heard anybody write about it. And so I got in and I was like, this is really well done. This would be a really courageous series to do with our church. So I've kind of been waiting for it and, uh, and got to talk to David. And uh, so we're, I'm, really, I'm really excited and a little nervous and, and scared all, all the same. Uh, so we've got a couple things. Uh, one, I'll put up the, the topics for the series. This is kind of how it'll go. We'll do the intro today, and then we'll talk about seven of these core emotions of God. 
uh, hate, anger, jealousy, sorrow, joy, compassion. And then I'll do an interview with Dave. If you don't like his book, you can tell him. You can like, tell you. You could ask questions on that day. So as you're going along the series and you have questions, jot them down because legitimately we'll give you a chance to ask questions on that day. Uh, and then we'll end with love. I think fittingly. So we do a thing at New Hope. Uh, we call it the Big Read. I, I mentioned this last week as well. A couple times a year, we rally around a book that we think will deepen the experience of the series, and we encourage you to read a book. I know it's a crazy idea. Read a book. And so this is our book, and it's really great. I can confidently say, as we're trying to be apprentices of Jesus around here, Sundays are not enough. I hope they whet your appetite. I hope they're a catalyst for the week. But you have to go out and decide if you're going to follow Jesus or not. You have to have your own relationship with God and his word, and, and you've got to practice it. That, we can't do that for you, uh, but we can give you resources. And I, I really think this will deepen your experience, whether you embrace it as a family or a life group as an individual. So this is on sale today. I think we had a lot sold the first service, so we may run out, and we'll order more. But the, his publisher gave us a half-price discount, which is great. So I do not think you can find this at a cheaper rate. We're not trying to make money. We're trying to get you good stuff. Um, also, um, to supplement the series, we're gonna, our creative community will be doing some things as the series mo moves on. I think we'll have, be able to play a, a role in that. And then finally, I was like, well, as we talk about the emotions of God, of course, and I'll talk about this some today, it affects how we see our own emotions. I'll argue that it gives us an example of how to express our emotions. And we can't talk about God's emotions without us getting emotional. And we're not naive. We know that'll bring up stuff for people. And we want to be a community that cares about those things. So I've gathered three really respected therapists that are Christ followers. One of them is my own therapist, and you cannot ask him any questions about me. And, uh, and I'm going to do a podcast with them, um, and then we'll release them along with the series. So we'll, t we'll tell you when we're doing it. So such, we'll, we'll, have, we'll talk about God's anger, and that will hopefully reflect and give us some really good stuff as it rega with regard to our own anger and all the struggle with anger in some degree. And we'll talk about that with these professional therapists. And therapy has been a game changer for me. These people also love Jesus and love the Bible. And I, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. So stay tuned. How are we feeling about everything? We feeling ooh, a little apprehensive, a little apprehensive. Some people are really excited. You're the naive ones. All right. So uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, I just admit, I, this is vulnerable stuff. And when we talk about emotions, we're entering in a different terrain than the stuff we normally talk about in church, which probably isn't good. And so we're, we're going to go there. We're going to talk about it. Uh, we want to know you more. Uh, we, we, we acknowledge that every single person in this room uh, has an imperfect view of who you are. We'll be spending all of eternity discovering who you are. And we want to know you. We long to know you. We don't want to get that wrong. So help us. Help us in the series to know you in a deeper, more intimate way. And help us to know ourselves. Help us to get to know those we live with and do life with uh, so that we can fully exercise our emotions in a healthy way so we can be human as you created us to be. Um, we know only you can accomplish this. And so we just invite you in from the get-go. Have mercy on us. Uh, be with us today as we uh, introduce this series uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. how would you define emotion? Like, if we were sitting around at a, a lunch or a dinner, and I was like, how would you define emotion? If you're around here much, you know I love etymology. I love definitions, because I think we have bad definitions of a lot of words. So when I started writing the sermon, I was like, okay, this should be pretty easy. What's the definition of emotion? And I was like, uh-oh, this is not, not easy. I learned quickly, and some of you may know this, the discussion of emotions crosses two disciplines, uh, psychology and philosophy. And it's not easy. And, and as I read, you know, for a while on this subject, uh, philosophers and psychologists will agree the one thing that they all agree about on emotion is that there's no definition. <laughs> That's the only thing they can agree on. They all kind of see it differently. Uh, here's uh, some definitions of emotions I found. Here's Google Dictionary, a natural instinctive state of mind deriving from one's circumstances, mood, or relationship with others. The American Psychological Association, a complex reaction pattern involving experiential, behavioral, and physiological elements. Uh, Dr. Carol Eisard, she went through 40 uh, definitions of emotions from professionals and tried to correlate them into this. 
Uh, it consists of neural circuits, response systems, and a feeling state slash process that motivates and organizes cognition and action. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> did, anybody, did anybody follow that? I don't know. Uh, with all due respect to Carol. Um, uh, David Lamb in his book gives it a go. Feelings, particularly strong ones that are prompted by circumstances, moods, and relationships. I thought I'd ask uh, chat uh, GPT the old AI that's out there, if you messed around with that. This is my first time even messing with it. So I was like, AI, what is emotion? And this is the answer that uh, the AI gave me. Emotion refers to a complex psychological state <clears throat> that involves a range of feelings such as joy, sadness, anger, fear, or surprise. Emotions are often triggered by external events or internal thoughts and are typically accompanied by physiological changes, such as changes in heart rate, breathing, facial expressions. They can influence behavior, thoughts, and social interactions, can also affect physical health and well-being. Emotions are a fundamental aspect of human experience and play a crucial role in shaping our perceptions and actions in the world. That's a good job. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm kind of freaked out by the whole AI thing, but that's a really good, really good answer. I, uh, as, you know, we got to kind of orient ourselves here around. And I think the way I begin to think about it is I think there's components of emotion that we could all agree on. And we can pull from these different experts. Um, we're not going to come up with a concise definition. I think that would be futile to try to seek that. So here's some components you may be able to add to this list. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it helps orient us. I think emotions uh, are subjective in that uh, you have your emotions, I have my emotions, they may not be the same thing, they're not objective truth, they're subjective to our own experience and our own background and our own experience in the moment. I think emotions are, are felt in that, um, that's, feeling was a word that a lot of them use, like you feel emotions in your body. And sometimes, I don't know if this is true for you, sometimes you won't be able to tell me that you're feeling that, but you feel it in your shoulders, they're tight, or your neck's tight, or you get a headache, or Right? We, our body doesn't lie to us, as the famous book says. We feel emotions in our body. I think most emotions are reactionary. They don't just happen out of thin air. Something is prompting them. You may not be able to put your finger on what's prompting them, but something is causing you to behave this way or to feel sad or to feel angry or whatever it may be. I think emotions are also effective in that they, uh, with an A in that they affect our behavior. I think they cause us to behave in a certain way, whether we're stomping our foot or making a certain facial expression or not sleeping well. They prompt things. They don't, they don't just lie dormant in our bodies. We feel them and they move us to action. Uh, they're powerful. I don't think anybody can say they're not powerful. And you can have different degrees of an emotion, but all emotions are powerful. And then finally, this is a phrase that uh, one of the Supreme Court justices, Justice Potter Stevens, I think, said um, way back in the day, when trying to define pornography, he said, you know it when you see it. And I think that's true of emotions. I think we know it when we see it. So that's my best shot of kind of some of the components. Uh, Dr. Paul Ekman did this famous study several decades ago, and he was trying to prove that emotions are universal, which I think that they are. And so he thinks that all emotions are expressed in our face and that we know that. There's 43 facial muscles, and some have said that we can make up to 10,000 facial expressions. Uh, Dr. Ekman said, no, there's, there's basically like six basic human emotions that are true to every culture and every people throughout time, and you just know it when you see it in someone's face. So they went around even to like Papua New Guinea and places that hadn't had much worldwide interaction and just would hold up a face and say, what emotion is this? And they found that there was broad correlation. I thought we'd do that today. Here are the things up in the top row, all the way to the left. Uh, what emotion do you think that is right there? It's anger. Yep. Um, and look at all of them before you answer the second one. The dude to the right, which one do you think that that is? It's fear. Yep. The lady right next to him, um, that is what? Disgust. Disgust, right? That's an easy way. Down here, this lady to the left is surprise. Good. And then um, next to him, the dude there? Yeah, happiness or joy. And then next to him? Uh, some have said, added a seventh and said there's seven uh, universal emotions, and it would be this face. What, what do you think that is? Contempt. It's contempt. The French uh, has, have given us a lot of things, uh, baguettes and other things, and they also gave us the word for emotion. 
And they've apologized because in the French language, it's a negative term. And it it's kind of means uncouth and that it's tied to a public display. And they think that's totally inappropriate. And this really goes back to the roots of Western civilization. We go back to the Roman Greco times. We go back to Stoicism. And all of these thought systems said that emotions are bad. Don't show emotions. And they would even tie it, interestingly enough, on how to survive suffering. They said, you want to get through suffering because life's really hard and we're all going to suffer? Just don't show it. It's kind of their theory. That's stoicism. And so this is deeply, deeply rooted in how we approach this, emotion, this, this topic of emotions. We don't know what to do with them. And if we know what to do with them, we're told to do nothing with them, to leave them alone. I, I just want us to reflect that wherever you come from, that's probably deeply rooted in how you think about this topic. And of course, it affects how we think about God. Pete Scazzera is a pastor from Brooklyn. He's retired now, but he wrote a bunch of books. And Pete, uh, they were trying to make apprentices of Jesus as we are. And he said the church does a great job talking about intellectual development and social development and certainly spiritual development and even bodily development, but the church has nada on emotional development. And he said, what happens when you're doing really good in those four areas, but you're an emotional hot mess? He goes, well, just look at the modern church. <laughs> it's kind of, you know. So he, he developed this, this curriculum called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. A couple years ago, we did a couple classes. It took a few hundred New Hopers to do that, and it's really, really great stuff. And I think Pete's on to something. Pete would argue that most of us, most followers of Jesus, are emotionally, this is his term, emotionally underdeveloped. I don't know if you would agree with that with regards to yourself. But he said here... Uh, here are uh, signs of emotional undevelopment. So I want you to kind of just, you don't have to share with anybody, but kind of check the box when we read these. Uh, signs of emotional undevelopment, ignoring anger, sadness, and fear, dying to the wrong things, denying the impact of the past upon the present, dividing life into sacred and secular compartments, doing for God instead of being with God, Avoiding conflict, covering over brokenness, weakness, and failure, uh, not living within your limits, and judging others. All right, how many did you have there? I've mean, had like six. You know, it's like, check, check, check. It's kind of the state of the American church. And there's no judgment here. It's just we don't talk much about this. Most of us are, I think, Peter's right. I can't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. I'm certainly emotionally undeveloped. Uh, one person said, that they like their emotions like they like their, their water uh, bottled. That's how they want it. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's how we're doing it. Uh, so we come to Psalm 69. Uh, thanks to Raylene, because that was a really long reading that she did. And you were feeling that probably. But what I wanted you to feel is just to be in the psalm. Just to like sit back and that's how you deal with poetry. You just you sit in it. You enter it. You listen to it. And if you notice, and I'd encourage you to go back this week and look at Psalm 69. It's a Davidic psalm. King David wrote it, and he was a really emotional guy. It's super emotional. You probably heard phrases jumping out. I mean, all the psalms are emotional. This one's really emotional. And also, God is emotional in it. And that's what I wanted you to see. Like, God is intrigued and like, whoa, I'm, I'm a... And so we, 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 we struggle, like, seeing God that way. We struggle uh, ascribing emotions to God. There's a term for that theologians use called impassibility, the idea that, that God cannot be emotional. And I think that's utterly ridiculous when we hear something like Psalm 69, or we look at Jesus, who is God incarnate in the Gospels, to say that God doesn't have emotions. But there's a lot of theologians that, that would be like, God can't be emotional. God's not affected by how we live and how we feel. I think that's complete rubbish, and we'll get more into that later. David, in his book, I'll give you a little tease. He says the, the, one of the struggles we have with ascribing emotion to God, he, he, he lists three reasons. There's probably many more. But he said, one, that we tend to think that emotions are not rational. He quotes Sherlock Holmes talking to Dr. Watson, saying, like, if you're going to be emotional, that's, that's the, the exact opposite of being rational or reasonable. And I just don't think that's true at all. There's a book called Emotional Intelligence, which is a term being thrown around now by Daniel Goleman. And Daniel says, to make rational, reasonable decisions, you have to be emotional. You can't bifurcate the two things. Here's an example. If you're in a relationship with someone, uh, you know, you're dating someone, or you're engaged, you're married, or it's a good friendship, 
and you love them, and you're over dinner one night, and you look to them in the eyes, and you're like, I love you, but it's not reasonable that I do. Like, how does that feel? It's not rational that I love you. Of these things work together. That would be deeply hurtful to that person. Of course, our emotions and our reason meld together. David says we also struggle ascribing emotion to God because we feel like emotions uncontrollable. And we, we picture God as being very much in control. So if God's uncontrollable like our emotions, then, then the world's in trouble. But again, I think that that is, is a misnomer. We, we see Captain Marvel, if you f- follow those films, Jude Law's character uh, says to Brie Larson, the, the greatest danger to a warrior is to get emotional. That's what he's saying. You hear this sometimes in athletics, sometimes in every field. Keep your emotions at check and you'll do better. And I just think that that's totally, totally uh, fallacious thinking. We see in Scripture, we're told uh, that God is slow to anger and that we're to be slow to anger. We're actually told, Paul says, to be angry but do not sin. So yes, we can um, use our emotions and exercise our emotions and express our emotions in ways that are not uncontrollable. And then finally, David says, we struggle with ascribing emotion to God because emotions are really complex. And I would say a hearty amen to that. Yes, they are. And that's why we're going to do a nine-week series uh, looking at it. So let's look at a few phrases from Psalm 69. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Um, We're now handing Bibles out, so you have zero excuse uh, to have a Bible. And I I won't shame you today, but next week I will shame you if you don't have your Bibles. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. No shame zone. Uh, So Psalm 69, spend some time in the Psalm this week because it kind of cascaded over you. Return to it. Feel the emotion in it. David's clearly emotional. Here's some example of God's emotions. In your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The Lord hears the needy. God is a reactive God and an effective God and does not despise his captive people. This psalm is quoted 13 times in the New Testament. There's only two psalms quoted more. Jesus quotes it a lot. It's actually been called the Passion Psalm of Jesus. It's closely connected to God incarnate. So as with most important conversations in our world, I think when we approach emotions, we tend to have an all or nothing or an extremist view. And so I've kind of teased out a little of this already, but just to kind of clearly state, I think this is what we're walking into. When we talk about emotions and ascribe them to God and we talk about our own emotions, we have two kind of extremes uh, we fall into. One would be that God is impassive. God has no emotions, and we should be impassive, and we shouldn't express our emotions, and we should tap down our emotions, because that's rational, and that's healthy. This is deep, deep, deep into us. I want you to see that. I think most of us who are a little older, you're probably more affected by this thinking. I call this the the Scandinavian God, with all due respect to my Scandinavian friends out there. You know, the stoic God. Did you hear about the Scandinavian husband who loved his wife so much he almost told her? (laughs) I mean, that's, we laugh. I was talking to somebody after the first service. I mean, German background, Swiss back, right? I mean, on and on and on. This is deep in the roots of our culture. Don't be emotional. Don't be emotional. Don't be emotional. So that's one. And I think and you could be younger and feel that, or maybe you're living in a home now. That's what's told to you. So that'd be one camp. And then we go all the way over the other stream, and I, and I see more younger people kind of going into this extreme, and I think it is a scream. And it's, it's not that there's no emotions, but it's emotions are everything. And so I, you are your emotions is this idea, that your emotions are your identity, that your emotions just aren't your subjective truth. They're objective truth. And you better agree with me on how I'm feeling right now and then agree with me again when I change my mind in five minutes. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be mean. I think that that is a very real thinking. I am my emotions. Or there's no emotions, don't be emotional. (laughs) I think this is kind of where we enter in. And then we kind of map these things onto our view of God and it's super dangerous and destructive. And so we're going to approach kind of a third way as we often do at New Hope. And that's the idea that Your emotions are not your identity. Hear that. 
you're a follower of Jesus, uh, Jesus is your identity. Your belovedness in Christ is your identity. And out of that, we can express healthy emotions. Out of being beloved and held and knowing that all is made right and well, we can express through the power of the Spirit healthy emotions. I will argue throughout the series, the teaching team will argue that we need to be more emotional, not less. But our emotions need to be tethered to the example of God's emotions and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be expressed in the right way. That's kind of what we're going to be arguing from the go. You can agree or disagree. We have nine weeks to change your mind, I guess. Yeah, that's it. So, um, so I want to uh, jump in. Like when I do intro messages, um, I like to throw out some ideas that we're going to return to again and again and again throughout the series. So here's kind of three brief ideas that I'll, we'll lay out today, and then you'll hear these throughout the nine weeks. And I hope your experience with these today, you may hear them and be like, I don't know, but hopefully they'll be deepened and you'll understand them better as, as we go uh, through the series. Uh, A.W. Tozer is a theologian. I think I read this quote when I was like in my teens, and I was like that kind of rebellious teen that also, also loved theology. I was like this weird kid. And I remember reading this, and uh, it really caught me, and it's always hung with me. I think, it's, I think it's true. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he or she at any time may say or do, but what he or she in their deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. I think it's really profound. And that's a bold statement. You can disagree with him, but when I say, who's God? And this picture comes in your mind, Tozer would say that's the most important thing about it because it affects everything. It affects absolutely everything. What you worship, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you do relationship, it affects everything. And none of us has a perfect picture of God, but our goal should be to be growing and understanding God with greater perfection. What we tend to do is we caricature God and this is just natural. We caricature just about everything in our culture. And a caricature is taking one aspect of a thing or person and blowing it up. So, like, my wife and I had caricatures years ago in, in Vegas, and they, I can't, they were horrible. Like, I don't want to look back on it, but I think they gave me, like, a super big forehead. Do I have a big forehead? I don't answer that. I, like, they take some feature, and they blow it up, and you're just, looking, like, looking cartoonish. So uh, this is a caricature of what famous person? Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln was brilliant and Christ flower and the whole thing. We all know about Lincoln. Uh, he also was notoriously not a handsome fella. He, one of his opponents one time um, called him two-faced, and he quickly quipped, if I had two faces, I'd be wearing the other one. You know, obviously. So, so he, he had the, you know, kind of bigger ears. That I've seen some caricatures of Lincoln. He had the narrow face or the big hair. We've all seen characters. But that's what it is. And this is what we intuitively do to one another, and we do it to God. And so two, like, easy caricatures of God that you may have grown up in churches that, that, that te taught this way or lived this way, the angry God. That God's just like lightning bolts for whatever you're, you know, what, oh, I caught you again. You know, I'm watching you. And you're just like, oh, like the judge God, the sheriff God, that kind of idea. God's angry. He's out to get us. That's deep in the church. Uh, the other one would be, the, the, I think, the, the reaction to that. And that's uh, the loving God, the dawdling God, the God that's barely paying attention and kind of like pats you on the head, kind of senile and like, it's okay if you mess off and like, there's no bad things, you're good. These are two caricatures. We're taking one aspect of God and we're making it everything. And so what we're gonna do with this series and get ready for it, because it's gonna, it's gonna mess with you a little bit. I had a, I had a friend that comes here every Sunday that um, he's not here, he's on vacation this week, but he bought this book before he left. And he's like, dude, this book's messing with me in a good way. He's like, I'm going to watch this sermon day. Like, I can't, this is awesome, like, to be able to think of God differently. And so you're going to be troubled some Sundays. You're going to be pushed because our caricatures of God are going to be pushed because we're arguing that God, as revealed in Scripture, is all of these things, all at the same time. How does that work? Well, as you're thinking, as I'm talking right now, and you can, can you feel it in the room? I can feel it in the room. It feels unsafe. 
We, 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 we grew up in churches sometimes where like, people like me would, would be manipulative with God's emotions for selfish gain. Uh, you may have been abused in that way in some way. I'm so sorry. I hope that never happens here. Or you may have grown up in an emotionally abusive household. You've been in an emotionally abusive relationship. So these are tender, tender things. And I want to be cognizant of that throughout the series. So I want to throw in that as we enter into this terrain and we're being pushed to think differently about God, that here's one thing that's true. I think we need things to tether us to the truth, kind of things to protect us, boundaries. And one of them is that God is always, always good. God's always good. And that's not an emotion. That's an ethic. So the word for good in the Hebrew is tov, and it means uh, everything working as it should. It means excellence. It means beauty. That's God. It's used 700 times in the Bible, mostly for God. When, when God is uh, revealing himself to Moses, and Moses is like, I want to see you. And God's like, I don't think you do. You better hide in the rock, buddy. And he's hiding himself in the cleft of the rock, and God passes. He's like, I'm going to allow my goodness to pass in front of you. He, he, he refers to himself as my goodness. David, King David says, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. At the end of Psalm 23, you may know that one. Surely your goodness and your mercy, surely... They will follow us all the days of our life till we dwell in the house of the Lord together. God is good. Now, you may struggle with that today. You don't have to agree with that. We're at different points on the spiritual journey. But I'm, I'm, we're going to come back to this. When you're feeling uncomfortable, you're like, I don't know about that. God's good. God's good. Here's what I truly believe. Everything in our lives that's good is from God. And everything that is not good is not from God. And I, I deeply believe that. So I hope that will help, help guide us through this series. So kind of second thought as we're, as we're walking through this that we'll, we'll return to is that God, uh, God shows us how to get emotional. We're going to argue we need to get more emotional. God shows us how to get emotional. Anne Lamont, uh, the great writer, she's really funny too. Uh, she says, you can safely assume you're created in your God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> And I think that that's a caution that we'll give. I struggle with that. We all do. This is just part of being human and frail and not having all the information at our fingertips. That when we don't, we tend to fill in the gaps by making God in our own image. We're just all prone to that. Mature people will realize that and factor that into how they see God. Like, oh, God looks exactly like me and all the people in my tribe. You know, how about that? What are the chances? <laughs> you know, that kind of deal. I think we just got to be really, really careful. And for the record, the chances are zero. <laughs> God looks that way. <laughs> so we, we, we do this in different ways. Uh, I think that uh, two examples, and I'll, I'll go into really tender territory here because we're always going to be honest here. And I'm not making any political statements. Just please don't read that into what I'm saying. But like it broke my heart as I think it broke most of our hearts when we saw January 6th, just on the face of it, just people storming our Capitol and breaking things and people dying. Like, none of us want that. And then to see crosses and Christian symbols just really broke my heart. And I don't think those people have been led well. I don't think that they're naturally malicious. I just think that they're naive and they've been sold the wrong bill of goods and they think badly about God. It doesn't excuse their behavior, but it should create compassion, which is a topic we'll, we'll get to. Um, but I think what they're doing is they're taking their own anger and they're putting it on God. They're saying, this is how God would act because I'm angry about this. So thus God must be angry. You must be very, very careful. One of the therapists she attends uh, here, and I was talking through this series with her. This is another example of how we do this. She said, you know, jealousy, John, in counseling, when, 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 we, work, when we work with abusive spouses, uh, that come from a Christian background, one of the lines the abusive spouses gets, gives for their abuse is like, I'm jealous for you like God is. And so there it is, right? This stuff happens. And like, we, we'll talk about the jealousy of God and we'll push into that. And what does that mean? But we co-opt that in our brokenness and in our sin and we make God in our own image. The, the irony is the, our call, our creative call is the exact opposite. And we'll just nerd out for a half second here. In the early chapters of Genesis, the Hebrew word for all of us being made in God's image, that word is icon, E-I-K-O-N. We get our English word, icon. So ancient Near East kings would refer to themselves as icons of gods. They thought of themselves as godlike. They represented the divine to their people. 
They would also set up statues or literal icons throughout their kingdom. So when you would be going along a road on your horse and you saw it, you'd be like, oh, I remember who's in charge. I remember this is their territory. So that's kind of, so now we see what that word means when the writer of Genesis says we're created in God's image. We're meant to icon God. God made us and blew his life into us so that we could represent God and image God's goodness and cause his world to flourish. That was it. And then sin came and mayhem struck. (laughs) And now we're broken icons that through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the work of Jesus on the cross, God is recreating us to be icons. So what we do with our emotions is we create God in our own image. God acts like us. We got to reverse it, right? We are created in God's image. And so this series is about looking at God, how God properly exercises emotions and then say, now we, through the power of spirit, must love like that. We must be compassionate like that. We must be joyful like that. When we're angry, we must be angry like that. We following? So that's, it's kind of, that's my quippy little line there is God shows us how to get emotional. God shows. We need to be more emotional, not less, but God shows us. We don't show God. <laughs> and I think most of us walk in here, you wouldn't say it that way, but that's how we think. And we need to be very, very careful about that. All right, so finally, this goes into our, our prayer life, more practical stuff. We need to, and we'll say this again and again throughout the series, begin to talk to emotional God with emotion. Um, if you've never, all of us struggle in our prayer lives. I know I do. And so uh, one thing that I encourage you to do that will be a learning is to pray out loud. Maybe don't start doing that in public right away. That'd be might weird, but like at home, just pray out loud. And listen to us, and sometimes I'm like, why, why am I saying that? That I'm not even thinking right now. What a, and I think what we find is we're praying kind of nonsense sometimes. We're not thinking. We're not fully invested with our emotions. We're keeping things back like we do with most people. And then we pray to, like, robot God, that we really don't think that God's going to be moved or do anything from our prayers. And the Bible tells us the exact opposite. The Psalms are our prayer book. We need to start using them that way. We mine gold from the Psalms. We pull lines from the Psalms. We learn and are formed how to be a praying people from the prayer book. I think it's one of the coolest things to know that our Psalms were Jesus's prayer book. Jesus memorized them all. And it is in those horrifying moments, he prayed those prayers. Like, how cool is that? That we're praying the same prayers as Jesus. So we got to reacquaint ourselves with the Psalter. Um, I would really advocate praying one a day or reading at least one a day. All of us can do that. It's not that difficult. And you'll find, I find all the time when I'm reading, I'm like, whoa, David, whoa, with the emotion. That's a lot. It's a lot. I'm not sure that I'd ever pray that to God. I mean, that's what, because we come from this background. So we'll learn to get more emotional, God, and then we'll also be praying with greater audacity. And that's literally what Jesus says. Jesus says to pray audaciously. Jesus, Jesus, when he told his parable on praying, Jesus said, pray this way. Just keep on, just keep on, just keep on. Just be annoying, be annoying to God. (laughs) That's how he says to pray. We got to be more emotional with our prayers because God already knows how we feel. Like how farcical is it like we're hiding our emotions from God? (laughs) He already knows. Be real. And then we got to understand that he's an emotional God. And I think that will fill itself out as we make our way through the series, there's these psalms called imprecatory psalms. That when you read them, they are troubling. It's like, God, cast my enemies upon the rocks and break their heads. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't even know what to do with that. But I think there's, you know, some of that's hyperbole and it's poetry, and we could, we could talk about why that makes us feel uncomfortable. But the Psalter is audacious. And then uh, some would say up to 70% of the Psalter is laments, talking about sadness. Some of us just hear this, followers of Jesus. Some of us need to go home today and this week and write a lament to God, or write an imprecatory psalm. You just got to get it out. I mean, it's okay. It's okay to do that. God shows us how to do it. I want to end with a a little experience here. And so uh, St. Ignatian had this thing where he called it uh, imaginative reading. And so uh, I'm going to read a well-known story of Jesus, um, where Jesus is correcting the religious leaders who knew the Bible like the back of their hands, they had a bad understanding of God. So that should scare us. And, and so he's like, okay, you people. And he didn't give them a theological discourse. He's like, okay, here we go again. I need to tell you a story. 
And this is called the, 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 the parable, the story of the prodigal son. And I think what I want you to hear, and you may have read this a lot, maybe it's your first time reading it. It's a great, great story. But Jesus is clearly saying, this is who God is. Like, look at the emotion. All the emotions are here. Sadness and anger at sin. One son lost to debauchery. One son lost to religion. You know, a God who is, who is uh, compassionate and feeling. A God who is like waiting on the porch and pacing back and forth, looking for his lost boy, waiting. And then when he sees him, he just busts off the porch like a golden retriever puppy, you know, hiking up his robe and running and tackling his boy and kissing his face. And you see celebration and the big feast. You see all the myriad emotions of God. Feel it. Just feel it. Just get into it. As I read it, just let yourself feel it. In my office here and at home, I have Rembrandt's uh, painting of uh, Return of the Prodigal. Because when I lose my way, I'm just like, okay, that's God. And so I'm ending this first message this way to retether us to who God is. Because you're going to need to at times throughout the series, like, God's good. God's always good. And God is this. God is the, the God of the prodigal. And so as we get into it, and as I read it over here, here's what imaginative reading is. And try this out. It's a really great way to read scripture. Choose a character. Just choose a character. You could be the father. You could be the older son. You could be the younger son. You can make up a character. Maybe there's a fifth brother or sister. Like, be that person. Be like a bystander. Be like someone who worked for the father, who's on the, house, the porch with the father, watching for the son. Whatever it is, be in it. What do you smell? What do you see? What do you hear? And Ignatian would say the best way is to close your eyes. You may not feel comfortable doing that, but if you do, I encourage you to do that as I read it over you. And this is our emotional God. This is what we're going to spend the next nine weeks exploring together. So let's read this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. And I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his boy and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him all over. The son said to him, <clears throat> Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, ha, <laughs> quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. And now he's found. And so they begin to celebrate. But meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing so he called one of the servants and asked, what's going on? Oh, your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out, pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed a fattened calf for him? Oh, my son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours, he was dead. 
He's alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. So let that form us as we come to the table. I often hear the question, what is God like? I think the best theological answer is God's like Jesus. <laughs> we look at a lot of Jesus stories when we talk about God's emotions. Jesus is God in the flesh. What's God like? God's like Jesus. And on the cross, and that's what we come here to remember and reenact and rehearse for the great feast to come, on the cross are all the emotions of God. I love in David's book, you'll experience it if you read it, every chapter he ends with Jesus and the cross and the passion. He said all the emotions of God are, are evidenced. If you've never uh, watched the TV show The Chosen, are you familiar with this show? It's kind of a free show. And I'm super reluctant to recommend Christian art because most of it is really bad. Um, but this is incredible. It's really great. And we watch it as a family. We're taking it slow. And it's changing how I see God. And, and, and what is God like? God's like Jesus. So there's your assignment. Uh, read the Psalms and watch The Chosen. Uh, Away in a manger. I'm about to destroy this Christmas song for you, but that the line of the cattle are lowing, and that just means mooing loudly, and the baby awakes, the baby being uh, Jesus, the little Lord Jesus. Do you know the next line? Of course he cried. <laughs> I mean, come on, right? Has anybody, I mean, have you ever been around a baby? I mean, cattle are freaking out and this baby wakes up. And so that's a classic example in our art. It's a wonderful song. Continue to sing it. But that line is horrible. It tells us God's not emotional. God is emotional. God shows us how to get emotional. And as we come to the table, and this is the most important part of what we do here every Sunday, we come as God's people to remember God is Jesus is present with us here. That's what the scriptures say. I don't know what that means. Jesus is present with us here in a powerful way through his spirit. We remember, we reenact our story. We remember we're broken and have no hope without God and his grace. And all emotions of God are on full display in the table. And we are sad and we rejoice and we grieve our sin and we're delighted by God's grace and we're brought back into the light and we do it together. It's so beautiful. And then we live in hope of the feast to come. So in just a second, you'll have to come down from the balcony to participate. Thanks for doing that. Uh, we have four tables, and you just come forward as you're led, and uh, there'll be someone here uh, who walks you through communion, and uh, then you can return to your seat, and we'll worship a little bit and, and go home and get more emotional in the right way. Uh, so let me pray for us. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your broken body. Thank you for your spilled blood. Uh, thank you that... Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he said, do this, do this, do it often, remember me, because you're going to forget. You're going to get full of yourself. You're going to forget who I am. You're going to forget who you are. This reminds us who you are, reminds us who we are, and it sets our hearts and our bodies and our intellect and our emotions right uh, for the week to come. Thank you for the gift of this every week, God. What a gift. And we pray uh, we know you're present in it. We pray that your presence could become manifest to your people uh, in these moments we come together and as we worship you, that your spirit would be powerfully upon us, God. And if you're talking to somebody in the room right now and you're moving in someone's hearts and minds, God, listen. May they listen. Have your way with us, God. Linger with us and reshape us to be more like your son, Jesus, for your glory and for the sake of the world. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, all God's people said.